Okay, so what I'm learning is that we all need to write a huge thank you letter to beavers. Pretty much. Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Okay, writing beavers thank you letters and calling them agents of chaos? What the heck is going on in this episode? I am so excited to share this week's episode because we're talking freshwater systems, which is something that we definitely don't appreciate here enough on Water Women. And we're talking about why we should all care about freshwater systems a little more than we already do. We're also going to dive in and hear about Stephanie's field work, and it is so cool, guys. It really blows my mind, and I learned so much in this episode. Now, before we dive in, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast and don't forget to rate us and leave a review. I love reading the reviews that you guys leave. It makes me so happy to see that you guys are enjoying listening to this podcast as much as I love making it. Let's go hear about these beavers because what the heck? Welcome to the episode today, Stephanie. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Good. I'm so excited to have you on today. Probably can tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do. Kind of give us a little introduction to you. Sure. So I'm a stream slash community ecologist. Um, I'm working on my PhD down here at University of Alabama, and I study how human actions affect aquatic ecosystems and communities. Um, So for my master's research, I looked at how human land use affects fish communities. Um, Down here, I'm actually looking at how beaver dam removal affects the aquatic communities as well as the ecosystem function in those streams. That is so cool. Now, yeah. has in the past tended to be very marine-centric, so mm-hmm. I'm excited to dive into this freshwater today because I don't know a lot about freshwater systems, so I'm super excited to learn from you and have some new knowledge on that. Well, maybe I'm biased, but I really think freshwater systems are super fascinating. They're by far my favorite systems to study, and like they're really important for people because like we all rely on fresh water, so... I think that they're really important to learn about, and I think you'll find some very interesting things today. Oh, definitely. They're very underrated. You know, a lot of people seem to favor the marine, and we just take these freshwater things for granted. Yeah, yeah, we do. We very much take freshwater systems for granted. We don't study them nearly as much as we do terrestrial and marine systems, and which is weird because they really are the most important systems we have. Like, everyone needs fresh water, and the easiest and most reliable way to get fresh water is to maintain our freshwater systems and we just kind of tend to ignore them instead. So growing up, what made you want to study this? Did you grow up near water or how did you kind of like fall in love with it? <laughs> so I grew up in the mountains of Pennsylvania and I was that kid that was always off in the creek catching crayfish and newts and fish and just always getting into a mess. <laughs> um, and so when I went to college, it was it was always going to be me studying something aquatic. Um, took me a while to settle on. I actually wanted to do fisheries work. So I started my, my college career with actually working in fisheries. Um, and as I got through my master's, I kind of delved into this world of community ecology and, and kind of switched gears a little bit into more the the ecosystem big picture focus. But yeah, I was always, I was always, you know, in love with fish and freshwater systems. I was always out playing in creeks and stuff. So it was just kind of a natural thing that I was going to end up here. 
I love that. That natural born curiosity kind of led you here. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I was always a little wild child. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Always kind of out messing around in the nature somehow. Oh, yeah. That was me. My poor parents. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So what did you, you said you did your undergrad and then went on to do a master's. Mm -hmm. What did you do your master's on? So my master's, I studied how human land use affects fish communities. So human land use is basically how we use land. Um, It can be urbanization, agriculture, row crops, um, pasture, etc. And so what my research found is that our land use affects fish communities at multiple different spatial scales. So, you know, we typically have this kind of idea with streams that if you have this, we call it a riparian buffer zone. Um, So it's basically a strip of land on each side of a stream that you don't touch and you just leave it to, to be forested or whatever. As if you have that, then your stream is like protected and you're perfectly fine. And the rest of the landscape doesn't really matter in terms of the stream. And what my research found is that's actually pretty false. Um, These riparian buffer zones can help uh, reduce the effects that we have on a stream, but they by no means actually protect that stream entirely. So what we found was that things like urbanization and especially row crop agriculture still impact streams even with riparian buffer zones. So all of the land that drains into a stream is actually really important for looking at how that stream is affected by our activities. Cool. Yeah. That's so cool. It was a very big project. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a large undertaking. So that must have been very fun. Yes, I had. um, So I started with historic community data um, collected from the university. Um, I was at Missouri State at the time. And uh, it was, I think, 165 sample sites across southern Missouri. So yeah, there was a lot of a lot of driving, a lot of field work, <laughs> and then a lot of uh, messing with spatial data and, and doing all that kind of stuff to figure out how all of these things are impacting the streams in different ways. Because different types of land use actually impact streams differently as well. So it's a very complicated process. Definitely. So were you looking at any specific types of land use? Like what ones were you looking at specific- specifically? Because there's so many different different types of land use and different... Oh. like even within that. <laughs> yeah, there are. Um, so there is a, a database um, that the USDA has. It's called Cropscape. Um, so we we actually mapped my sites and my drainage areas over that Cropscape database. And so what we found is that the most common land uses in Southern Missouri, um, which fairly unsurprising, were forested land, um, uh, pasture, so like like cattle pasture kind of thing, livestock pasture, and urbanization. So those were the three that we mainly focused on. And we found um, that things like urbanization have a huge impact at a more local scale. Um, okay. But things like things like pasture and row crops have a much bigger impact at a, at a like a catchment scale. So where that that entire drainage kind of scale. That's super interesting. Yeah, it was, it took a lot of work to pick all of those little details out. Like, it sounds yeah, like a very simple, straightforward thing, but it was, it was, it was a very complicated procedure to go through and pick that stuff out. It must have been interesting to kind of try and like separate things too, because everything kind of is intertwined, like yes. certain land use might affect this. So it must have been interesting to kind of try and like pick that apart. Right. And, th- and they're all interconnected, you know, so urbanization and uh, agriculture can both cause things like sedimentation, 
Um, so like, yeah, you've got to sit there and you've got to pick out, okay, well, which one is causing it and, and what's the spatial scale of relevance for that particular thing. So yeah, it, it was, it was a lot to go through, but it was very interesting. And I love those, those really complicated big picture questions. And that's one of the reasons I like freshwater systems so much is because streams are highly changeable. They're not static in any way, shape or form. And, you know, a simple rain event can cause massive changes to a stream and you're back at square one where you're, you're back to picking out all those little things that you tried to figure out before. And I just, I love that complexity. <laughs> I love how excited you get about this. It really makes it fun to talk about for sure. Yeah. I, I, I love it. Like it's, it's very exciting to me. It's always fascinating. I really enjoy it. <laughs> so you were looking, were you looking for your master's at things just broadly affecting it? Were you looking specifically at good or bad or like, what did you kind of find? Were there any good outcomes of human land use or was it mostly negative yeah. as it is with humans? <laughs> well, yeah, humans have a, have a, a way of being very negative to <laughs> eco, uh, to landscape ecology, but um, there were some positive things that we found. So we did find that riparian buffer zones that were left forested did actually help protect streams. Maybe not entirely, but they certainly had an impact and you could see that in the data. So that's good to know. Um, riparian buffer zones at least 100 meters wide really help protect streams from a lot of those negative impacts that we have. So they can do things like capture excess sedimentation. They can absorb um, nutrient pollution before it reaches the stream. There's a lot of different things that those riparian buffer zones can do. And so that was one of the biggest takeaways. Um, another one was I actually found um, a, there's a small species of little shiner. It's a type of minnow called the carmine shiner. Um, we actually found them in a stream that they had previously been extirpated from by the building of dams. And so um, that stream that they were found in was a, in a forested area. It was in actually a conservation area. And so it's, it provides like a good hopeful look at the ability of fish communities to be able to recover in areas where, where we let kind of a little bit of forest back in and maybe we help those streams recover back to a more pristine state. So there that's, were, there were some good things. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting you, that like you usually equate like humans being involved with nature with like thumbs down, not great. Just stay out of it kind of thing. Yeah. But that's super cool that there was good things that came out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, information like that is always good to have. Um, it's, there, we don't have a lot of that information. So every little bit that we gain helps us become better and better stewards of our, of our freshwater ecosystems. So information like that is always really important, even if it does have a negative outcome initially. You mentioned you were driving around a lot, doing a lot of field work. What yes. would like a typical day in your life, at, like in your master's? Don't worry, we will be talking about your PhD too. I'm just super interested in this master's sure. right now. So um, what would like a typical day like? So when doing field work, um, field work is always very difficult. Um, it's a lot mm. of physical effort. Um, so I would be driving up to 250 miles to get to a sample site. Um, we were seine netting for fish. So, so a seine net is basically just a big, long, rectangular panel of net. And you just run it through the water and you capture fish. Um, so I had two assistants that I would take with me because it, it takes three people usually to run a seine. And so we'd run that seine through um, a set area of the stream you know we we have a we have a little like out like kind of algorithm that we use to determine how much of the stream we need to sample based on the width of it to to get a, an appropriate sample um, from that stream and so then once we capture all those fish they go into a bucket 
and then I ID all of them to species and then they just get released back into the stream. So it's, it's a very low impact way of sampling uh, your community. I love sayings. Sayings, I think, are such a great way to take account without like catching and like damaging everything. Yeah. Yeah. Sayings are really useful, especially in running waters. You know, you can use the flow of water um, to your benefit when when using yeah. the sane net. So like, yeah, they're, they're a really handy, effective and very simple method for sampling fish communities. So yeah, we just take that data and it's, it's just count data. So, you know, it's it's species A, we, you know, had X number of individuals, species B, X number of individuals. And, and we put that into um, an index. It's so what I used was called the Bray-Curtis index. And it basically takes multidimensional data and condenses it down so you can view it more easily. And it, it can help you pick out your relationships, you know, where your species are showing up uh, in different sites. And, com- and you can use that to compare it. So like mine, for example, I was comparing to land use, um, so yeah, it's 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 a great way to take big complicated data like that and and condense it down and really pick out all those important things that that you're looking for. Cool. That's super interesting. And I love that you did that. That is so fun. It sounds like really fun kind of field work. It is. It is. It's it's very physical and it can be it can be difficult. It's it's actually my fieldwork down here is actually more difficult than my fieldwork in Missouri was, but it's really oh, wow. fun. And I, I love seeing the things I catch and, and seeing what those communities look like. It's a lot of fun. So when you were doing your master's, you meant you were working with specifically fish communities. Did you have any specific kind of like fish that you were working with, like any specific species? Um, no. So the, the point of community ecology is that you look at everything. Um, there are certain species I would look for because I knew that they would be indicator species as, as we would call them. So okay. things like things like darters and mad toms, which are tiny little catfish that are the most adorable things on the planet, um, can indicate healthy streams. And so if you're catching a lot of darters and mad toms, you know your stream is probably pretty healthy. Um, whereas if you're if you're missing those fish, that's kind of a warning sign that you're probably in a degraded system. That's super interesting. I never really thought about that like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, so there's, there's these things called biotic indicator assessments, um, which you, most people use macroinvertebrates for, but you can use fish as well. And, and the different species you find in their abundances can tell you how degraded a stream probably is. Wow. It's so interesting that you can gain such like impactful knowledge from just such a little thing. It's just looking to see if that species is there it can tell you right. so much. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, it's cool. crazy how much you can pick out from that. <laughs> I love the way the world works. It's so interesting. It really is. And you finished your master's. And when did you start your PhD? Um, so I started my PhD about a year and a half ago now. Let's see. I've got to think for a second. Yeah, I started in 2019. So yeah, I, right right before the wonderful pandemic <laughs> happened. <laughs> Wow, what great timing. I know. I got really lucky, I think. <laughs> I love that. So what is your PhD? What are you looking at for this? Right. So for my PhD, um, I'm actually looking at how um, aquatic communities respond to beaver dam removal. So I have nine beaver ponds out in Talladega National Forest, and I've got associated upstream and downstream reaches for each of those ponds. And so we are, we're, we're currently pre-dam removal at this point. So the, I'm collecting data on the fish, crayfish, and macroinvertebrate communities. 
as well as ecosystem function um, data. So things like um, habitat type and quality, uh, water samples, um, I'm looking at nutrients in the, in the water, et cetera. And then in this September, actually, we'll be destroying dams at three of my ponds and looking, taking another year and a half to recapture the same types of data. And we're going to look at how all of that stuff changes pre and post dam removal. And this is really important because when you remove a beaver dam, um, it will change your flow rates of the stream that, that that beaver dam is on. And those altered flow rates can really impact aquatic communities. Flow is, is one of the most important things for aquatic communities. And so the idea is that we can scale that up and look at how the flow, the altered flow rates of things like human built dams can change communities. And, and the ultimate goal here is to help the state of Alabama to set minimum flow requirements for their streams so that they can maintain a sort of minimum level of healthy stream um, habitat. Okay, that's super interesting. That yeah. like, so how would they, after you collect your data and you determine that like the optimal flow rate is X, how would they make sure that the streams are all running at X flow rate? Where does that kind of come from? Right, so that is where, um, that, that kind of becomes a complicated question. Um, <laughs> so flow rates can be altered by a lot of things. Um, Water removal obviously is going to alter flow rates. So things like irrigation for crops are, are especially big out west where there's very little water. Down here, we don't have as much of a problem with that. Um, but our, our water, we have like a wet and a dry season down here. We don't really have like winter, spring, summer. Um, and okay. so we have a few months each year um, where we get a lot of rain. Um, you know, last February, for example, we had a flood where we got 10 inches of rain in like four hours. <laughs> and so yeah and, but then in the summer well our so-called summer our dry season we can have you know we can have no rain for a long time so so the the question then becomes um how do we maintain water on the landscape during those dry years but yet also help attenuate those floods to keep those floods from becoming big massive events uh which beavers massively help with um, beavers are actually really, really good at maintaining water on the landscape and attenuating the severity of floods. And so they're really important. And, and the hope is that we can kind of help kind of bring people more onto the side of, of letting these natural kind of things like beavers kind of take control a little bit and help us with those kind of issues. That is so cool that like you would never think that beavers would play such a large role in this. Like they're just such a random little species of animal that I don't think about all that often. And you would never think that they play such a huge role in maintaining right. the health of our systems. Yeah, and the biggest reason people don't realize that is because we have largely extirpated beavers across North America, as well as in Europe. Um, you know, they, they almost went extinct. But if you look back, you know, to prior to human settlement here, like like European settlement here, you can see that beavers covered almost the entire North American continent. And they their dams and, and beaver ponds and beaver meadows that subsequently get created are super, super important. And, and our country used to be covered in them. Um, and so the more that we allow beavers to come back in and kind of take over these spaces, the better that the, the better impacts that we're seeing. They help they help uh, fish communities and 
even fish that we previously would have expected to be negatively impacted by beavers like trout and salmon are actually positively impacted by them. Um, beaver wetlands slow down water, they allow macrophytes to grow, and those plants can then pick up um, a lot of nutrients and toxins and things out of the water. So they help clean the water, basically. And so, so what we're finding is that beavers are far, far more important than we ever truly realized. Okay, so what I'm learning is that we all need to write a huge thank you letter to beavers. Pretty much. Um, there's actually a book called Eager by Ben Goldfarb. It's, a, it's actually a massively great book, and it details how um, beavers are like super important in, in all of these many different myriad ways. It's a, it's a great read. I would highly recommend it. And it really, it really gets you thinking like that pristine stream idea that we have, where it's like this one nice little channel that's maybe a gravel bed stream. It's like, it's totally not what our streams really are supposed to look like. No. Yeah. Wow. I'm excited so, to read that. That's going on my list right now. Absolutely. I would absolutely recommend it. It's one of my favorite kind of sciencey books that I've ever read. It's a great read. And it's, it's the stuff in it is, is kind of mind blowing. It really changed my, my, the way I view streams, you know, cause I came in with very little knowledge of beavers when I came down here. And I always thought of that nice pristine stream kind of idea with this nice little channel. And I thought that that, yeah, I thought that was the perfect stream. And then I, I've learned as I, as I've learned more about beavers and how they impact streams and how things work, I've realized that that's like, that's not a pristine stream. That's, that's, you know, that's what we think of as pristine because we just don't know because we haven't seen what our, what our, you know, country used to look like, you know, several hundred years ago. And so really what, what our streams should be looking like are these vast mixes of wetland and pond and stream channel. And, and, you know, the, and we call it, we call it habitat heterogeneity where, where you have all these different little, this different little mosaic of all these different types of habitat. And that's really, really important to our, our aquatic uh, ecosystems, our, our aquatic species. And so, the more we can encourage that heterogeneity, the better our our um, communities are, and the better our water quality is. So it, it go they go hand in hand, very much so. Cool. That definitely kind of pieces like logically, if you think about it, that does make sense. But like, if you think of like ideal stream, I'm thinking like pristine, perfect, like neat, tidy. But it does make sense that you have all these things, all these different types of land kind of working together to make a healthy stream. Right. Right. And nature doesn't like neat and tidy, right? Like, we, yeah, you know, it's, it's, that's, that's human desire to be neat and tidy. <laughs> <laughs> nature doesn't like that. Nature wants messy and muddy and mucky. And, <laughs> and that's exactly what people are doing. It's, it's more fun. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to write an apology letter to beavers because I used to hate them. I used to be, well, I still, I'm not, not terrified of them, but when I was young, I used to be like, like one of my major fears was beavers. Really? Which is very interesting. I grew up on the lake and Uh I like vividly remember like kayaking with my dad and we'd go down like the lake I lived on was like a stream attached to different lakes and we'd kayak down that and like get out, there was a beaver dam and we'd get out and like walk over it carrying the kayaks Mm -hmm. and I had dad was like always like make sure you don't knock over the dam like the beavers will come get you if you do and I (laughs) was so scared that these beavers would not only come get me with when I was swimming but would like sneak into my house and tear down my house if I accidentally knocked down theirs (laughs) 
<laughs> well, they won't do that. Uh, Thankfully. But, but yeah, we actually, um, we do a lot of fighting beavers at, at our ponds where, where, you know, we, we try to, because beavers don't just build a single dam. They build, um, they build chains of dams, networks of dams. And so I have a lot of little mini beaver dams. We call them satellite ponds in my downstream reaches. And I'm always like tearing the dam out and then coming back out the next month and tearing it out again. And the beavers are always rebuilding it. And it's just like this never ending battle with these furry little rodents. <laughs> no dam. Yes, dam. No yeah. dam. That's basically what we do. It's like, it's this obvious, always back and forth. And it's, it's a lot of fun. I, I always joke that like, people are always like, oh, beavers, they're ecosystem engineers. And they're such a keystone species. And I'm like, no, they're just little agents of chaos. That's all they are. Agents of chaos. <laughs> I love that definition of beavers. I think that's what I'm going to be calling them from now on, because it's, it's the, very fitting. It's the perfect definition. They come in, they create chaos, and then they just sit back happily and watch it happen. Like, it's exactly beavers. <laughs> I like the picture of these beavers just like sitting back, relaxing, watching you like knocking their dam over, being like, mm, we're going to rebuild yeah. that as soon as she leaves. Exactly. With this little smirk on their face, like, mm, that'll only <laughs> take us a single night to rebuild. I don't know what she's putting that effort in for. It's it's exact. I know it. I'm they know it. A beaver with like a drink in their hand to talk <laughs> with one another. Be like, oh my God, this girl. Yeah. Just got that little glass of whiskey. Just like, mm, yeah, look at their, look at, look at this fool. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So you mentioned earlier that your fieldwork for your PhD is a lot harder than what you did for your master's. So you've yes. kind of talked a little bit about it, but what is a typical fieldwork day in your life like for your PhD? So typical fieldwork day here um, in Alabama is, you know, we it takes about 45 minutes to an hour to drive out to the forest. So it's, it's a much shorter drive, thankfully. Um, but then like, because beavers, um, getting to our ponds is often a rather long hike. Um, we're usually going down ridges into the, into the valleys. And then, you know, our valleys, because there's so many beaver dams are basically swamps. And so I have a lot of like crossing swamps or peat bogs even, uh, to try and get to my ponds. And those can be really, really difficult to walk in, you know, where, where you're walking and then suddenly you're hip deep in mud. <laughs> and you've got to like crawl your way out. <laughs> so it's a lot more physically difficult, but it's it's also a lot more fun. And you can you can tell that these these systems are just so much more productive and there's so much more um species. There's so many more species in them. It's kind of crazy. Um but it it does make it harder. Um I do have one pond that's really big on the quicksand, um which is always a fun day. <laughs> trying to walk through and then suddenly you're in quicksand and you're like great now I get to get on my hands and knees and crawl out of this <laughs> so you definitely don't come home clean ever no no I bring mud and sticks and leaves and often spiders home in my in my hair so oh yeah. you are brave brave yes. girl <laughs> spiders are a big thing in the forest out here they're they're here year round you always want to wear a hat in the in the forest um because there will be spiders <laughs> and you just kind of get used to them and you're just like oh look another one like okay fine you can chill out there on my shoulder or whatever like i'm done trying to wipe you off <laughs> spiders are one of those things that I like I tell myself I'm not scared of and like I'll tell other people I'm like oh my gosh I don't mind spiders and then like a spider's on me and I'm like okay get off please <laughs> like, it's okay I I used to be that way when I was younger and then like 
because I spend so much time outdoors, I kind of just got over it. And then now that I'm down here, I'm just like, oh, look, another one. Great. What are you doing? <laughs> like, they just don't even phase me anymore. <laughs> at least pay rent if you're going to be here. Right? Yeah. Like, you could at least help with some of this. <laughs> you could take down these dams for me if you're going to be here. Like, you know, you, you could at least collect a water sample or something. Like, come on. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So why are you looking at the specific communities that you're looking at? Like, I think you said like uh, certain fish, crayfish, what are the communities you said you were looking at? Um, Fish, crayfish, and macroinvertebrates. So macroinvertebrates are basically anything that's an invertebrate that you can see with the naked eye. Um, Mostly this is insects, like aquatic insects. Um, It also includes things like snails, um, different worms, uh, mussels, if there are any you know, things like that. And so the reason I'm looking at these communities is because macroinvertebrates make up basically the base of the food chain in, in these aquatic systems. So they're really important to understand how things are affecting, you know, how, how these different things are affecting the stream. Um, also, ma- most macroinvertebrates are only in the stream for, you know, less than up to a year. Some of them can be in there for several years, but they're basically a yearly t- turnover kind of community. And so they can give you a very quick snapshot of what's happening and how things are responding. And then things like fish communities will will change based on the macroinvertebrate communities because the macroinvertebrate communities are their food. And so the, the fish provide you kind of that more long-term view of, of okay. what's happening in the system because fish are longer lived and they're, you know, they're, they're going to take longer to respond, etc. Okay, so they kind of all give you a little bit of a different insight into what you're looking for. Right, right, yeah. It's similar, but different insights, yeah. Cool. So what, like, if you had to guess, I know you're still in the beginning phases, but right. what do you think is going to come from your PhD? What do you think you're going to find? Well, so what we are expecting to see is we're expecting to see increased diversity of macroinvertebrates, um, mostly because a large number of aquatic insects um, actually prefer flowing water. So by removing a dam, theoretically, we're increasing flowing habitat. Um, however, we're also expecting there to be a decreased abundance, um, because we do know that that while beaver ponds don't always support um, higher like numbers of species, they do support higher biomass of insects. So the fewer species that are there, there's a lot more of them, basically. Um, so we're expecting to see kind of that opposite to happen, where we get an increased diversity, but a decreased abundance of macroinvertebrates. Um, and we're, we're expecting kind of an opposite in fish. Um, beaver ponds, we found out here, tend to, to have higher fish species and higher abundance of fish. So we're thinking that by removing the beaver dams, we may see decreased abundance and richness of fish species. Um, however, some of my data is, is kind of throwing up questions about that, that we have so far, um, where we're, we're looking at it and we're finding fish species in like, especially my downstream reaches. Cause we really haven't studied downstream reaches of beaver dams previously. And we're finding species there that are this weird, interesting mix of what we expect to find in my kind of upstream pristine reaches that are definitely flowing water and the ponds. And, and so this weird combination of, of both different types of, of communities 
in these downstream reaches has has proven to be very interesting to us and we're we're very interesting to, we're very interested to see what's going to happen there that is it's kind of when you mentioned having like a higher diversity of fish uh species in the ponds it's kind of like counterintuitive right almost like you'd kind of expect to see lower amounts of fish in a closed off pond you you would think but these ponds aren't as closed off as as we like to believe them to be um, beaver dams are not like human dams where they're a solid wall. They're often very permeable. Um, they they shift water across the landscape and they they create additional channels and connectors and things like that. And you know, and and a rain event can easily overwhelm a dam and allow a fish to cross over a beaver dam. So okay. so they're they're much more permeable than we than we think of when when you think of you know building a wall across a stream basically. <laughs> Um, okay. Which so they they do function a lot differently than like a human built dam would. And I guess if you kind of take into account like how small fish like babies are, right? Getting through those dams, I'm sure, is a little bit easier for like smaller fish than it is for like the large fish that we tend to think of when we think of wild fish. Right. And there there has been some some previous research, not that I've done, but that others have done, that have shown that a lot of fish will actually preferentially choose beaver dams to um to spawn in. So, oh, cool. so yeah, yeah, beaver ponds are actually really really great places for juvenile fish to grow up. Cuz they have lots okay. of food, they have lots of cover because there's all those plants and and everything growing in there and there's all that structure for them to live around. So yeah, juvenile fish it's actually it's actually a really great place and it's probably extremely important for a lot of species to have things like those ponds for their for their juveniles to grow up in okay that makes sense too like they would be like protected from predators and all that mm-hmm. stuff it does make sense super yeah. cool it's it's much the way that you see a lot of saltwater species will use estuaries as juveniles because it provides a lot of food and protection for the for those smaller life stages okay that's so cool yeah yeah, it's, oh, it's I'm learning so much. I know it's the same kind of concepts, but in a totally new way of looking at it, and it's it's great. I love it. <laughs> it's all things too that are like very logical. That like, well, some of it mostly is logical. Like, mm-hmm. it makes sense that uh, these deeper these deeper deeper bands. Why can I say that? <laughs> beaver beaver dams. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that part in just for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> beaver dams would kind of like have this much effect on it but like you wouldn't you don't normally think about this it's kind of like out of sight out of mind i'm not looking at beaver dams every day like you are so they're really not like top of my radar but it's they're so cool to learn about yeah and 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 the more i learn about them the more i'm like why doesn't everybody know this (laughs) and yeah it's just it's it's amazing how 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 important they really are it's funny when you get into your niche little subject, how like things that seem like such common knowledge to you are really these like super fun, cool facts for other people. Like I'll yes. like mention something about whales to people sometimes and they're like, what? That's so cool. And I'm like, no, it's like the least cool thing. Like, come on, yeah. like, it's normal. And it's just, it's weird getting into that little niche. Yeah. I was actually, I was talking to one of the professors here. He's, he's like a, an eco-hydrologist. And he asked me, he was like, what do beavers eat? He was like, do they eat fish? And I was just like, they're vegetarians. <laughs> they, they eat things like 
bark and plants. <laughs> they do not eat fish, but apparently that's like a common misconception is that beavers eat fish. <laughs> it's a valid question. Like if you're not studying beavers and you look at them and you look at those big scary teeth, like you're yeah. thinking, oh yeah, they're eating meat. They're tearing things apart. But no, yeah. that's, those are good. They're also very big. They're the largest rodent we have in North America. So they're, they're not oh. small by any means. And I, I, I can see how people might think that. <laughs> But no, these guys are vegetarians. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. No, they're just, they, so the, the little satellite ponds that they build, like I mentioned before, you know, they'll build one big main pond where they often will put their lodge or their burrow, but then they build all these little mini dams all around it on, on all the little stream channels. And we, so we call them satellite ponds and they're, they're just small little ponds. They put very, very little effort into them, but what they use them for is they use them to a store water because the more water they store in the landscape, the higher the water table, the deeper their pond will be. And then B, they store food in it. So they'll actually cut down trees and branches and they'll haul them into these little satellite ponds and store them down in the muck in the bottom. And then in the winter, when they're, you know, when, when the growing season is, is done, they'll pull those little branches out and they, they actually will peel the bark off and eat the bark off those branches. And so that's what they feed on. What? No way. Yeah, absolutely. They're, they're little food caches is, is all they are. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and you can imagine that by putting all of that woody debris in the bottom of a pond, it's creating so much structure and habitat for things like macroinvertebrates and fish and crayfish. It it real I mean it's it's no surprise that it that these ponds are so important to a lot of species when you look at that and think about that. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Like providing all this nutrients and cover and like mm-hmm. safe areas almost. Right, right. Well, so besides caring about it because it's fascinating, how does this affect us as humans? Like, why should we care, really? Well, the the biggest reason we should care is water. Um, Water is becoming an increasingly important uh, commodity for humans, Mm. especially in, in places like the desert west. And, you know, we've proven that beavers can help maintain water on a landscape. Um, and they can slow down these massive floods, which is going to become more and more important as climate change continues. Um, you know, climate change is going to cause more massive floods. It's going to cause more severe droughts. And beavers can help ameliorate some of that. They can help reduce the severity of some of those events. And so that's really one of the absolute biggest reasons that we need to start looking at things like beavers to help us control these kind of effects, because they're really going to become important especially with things like that happening. Um, But also like, if you like to go fishing, you should like beavers because beavers support all of those fish that you like to fish for. Um, Some of our most common fish that we catch out of our bigger beaver ponds are things like largemouth bass and pickerel. And and those fish are common and and well-loved sport fish. And so if you like to fish, you should like beavers because they really help support increased numbers of those fish that people like to fish for. Um, of course, there's the whole ability of wetlands and beaver ponds to clean water. As, as I said earlier, you know, all those plants that grow in, in, in and around beaver ponds can help p- take up uh, pollutants and excess nutrients. And of course, a lot that can also help the coastlines because coastlines, you know, dead zones like in the Gulf of Mexico are, are happening because of all of the nutrient pollution running into the coast. Whereas if you start allowing some of these things like beaver ponds to come in and and create these wetlands and stuff, it can help clean out some of those nutrients and help keep some of them from reaching the coastlines. 
and maybe we can help improve things like those dead zones. So there's like a multitude of reasons why we should care. There's many reasons. There's so many. Yeah, there's probably even more than I can think of right now off the top of my head. They're super important to to really consider and allow to take place. That is so cool. Like you, in your head, you know, you're like, yes, I should care about the environment, especially like water sources and everything. Like Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like common knowledge, but then you're kind of like, but why? Like really why? And yeah. <laughs> it's so cool that there's so many, like, factual reasons to care and how it really does affect us more than we might think. Right. It's not so out of sight, out of mind as you like to imagine it is. It's it's very much in your face. You know, the, the fact that we have running water in our homes and plumbing and, and city utilities kind of disconnects us from from how connected we really are to the natural world. And I think it's very important that people start to realize that we're not nearly as disconnected as we like to think we are. We're far more connected to it than we realize. Yeah, most definitely. Mm -hmm. Now, if there was someone who wanted to pursue kind of the same path that you took or same study area, what would be your advice for them? Like if there was a young girl listening to this that was like, I want to do that when I'm older, what would your advice be to get where you are? First of all, I would say, great. (laughs) Um, Second of all, I like, I'm a very big proponent of like doing things the not, not always, um, not always popular or common way. So first of all, I worked for 10 years before I ever even went to college. So I was not a fresh, yeah, I was not a fresh out of high school, um, college freshman. I had, I had worked for 10 years in like customer service industry. Um, which was actually beneficial for me in a lot of ways, because by the time I came in, I had a much clearer goal and Mm. and I had a much better idea of what I really wanted out of this experiment or out of this experience, not experiment. (laughs) Um, And I started at a community college. I really did. Um, I just went to my local community college and I started taking classes. And I would highly recommend that because community colleges are very affordable and the education you get is just as good a quality. And then I ended up transferring to Missouri State because it was a bigger university and it was would provide me more opportunities. And the biggest thing that I can recommend is to get started with research early. And it's and and if you're if you're you know if your family hasn't been to college or graduate school like like mine, then you don't really know where to start. But the important thing is to talk to your professors. Um, Mm. go online, go, go to your, you know, the list of professors for your department and find ones that are doing research that you think sounds interesting and then email them and be like, Hey, I'm interested in working in your lab as an undergraduate. And, you know, do you have any space? Is there anything that I can do to help out? And that's how I got started. I emailed one of my professors who's a fish ecologist. And I was like, Hey, I'm interested in helping out with this. Like I'm interested in getting some experience. How, you know, do you have anything that I can work with? And he was like, yeah, let me hook you up with my grad student who needs help this summer with her field work. And that's what I started with. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. I kept asking if there was more opportunities and I kept looking for other chances to get more experience. And, and that's, and I just ended up here. Now I'm here getting my PhD. I love that advice about reaching out to your profs and emailing them and just kind of Yes. For lack of a better term, being annoying. Because if they right. see your name continuously popping up, being like, hey, I'm interested. I want to do this. I am willing to put the work in. Then right. if an opportunity pops up, you're going to be the first person they think of because you've been 
in their minds, like on always popping up and everything. So it's fantastic yeah. advice. Exactly. And, and a lot of people don't realize that they should be talking to their professors. Talk to your professors when you're in class with them. Make sure they get to know you. Ask them questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question. And, oh, absolutely and get to know them and get to, you know, talk to them, ask them questions, make sure that they know who you are. Because first of all, like that's the best way to get involved. Second of all, you're going to need these people for references and things anyway. You don't want to be anonymous through college. Don't be anonymous. Really get to know your professors. Absolutely. It is like, if I could recommend anything for anyone going into undergrad specifically, just get to know them because it will help you on so many levels. Like there oh, yeah. are classes that I struggled in in university that I know that I only did as well as I did because the profs knew me as a person and knew that I was trying my hardest and it just didn't click for me. Knowing my professors has also helped me to get jobs. Um, so I worked oh, yeah. a summer I worked a summer for the National Park Service and that was entirely because my professor at Missouri State was like, hey, I know they're doing like fish surveys on the Buffalo River this year. So you should like email this woman named Hope and like and ask her if, if she's if she's willing to hire you. So like I got to work for the National Park Service for a summer. Um, one of the biggest reasons I, I got in down here is because my my PI down here knew my advisor from Missouri State. <laughs> and so all that networking is really important. And I highly recommend Science Twitter as, as a networking thing, because like yes. that has been one of my biggest networking tools so far. And well, that's how we met. It's been it fantastic. Is, it is how we met. And it's great. And I love it. Um, but I've met so many people by doing things like that and just networking and getting to know professors and talking to people. And, and you know, it's just it's really opened up a lot of doors. So definitely always get to know your professors. And specifically, you mentioned earlier, like reference letters. I have gotten the advice from people that it's always better to have a reference letter from a teacher that may not have taught you a relevant subject, but knows you well than it is to have a teacher that taught you in your subject, but has no idea who you are. It makes it so much better. Yeah. If they don't know who you are, they can't write you a decent letter. They can't, they can't tell the people, you know, what, what they, what they're looking for. They can't tell them really anything about you if they don't know you. So make sure they know you. (laughs) And science Twitter, yes, 100%. Fantastic way to network and get to know people. And it's not limiting to just your area. Like, you no. and I are at two, two time zones apart and yep. met somehow. So it's so amazing. Yeah, I mean, I have people on my Twitter that are in, like, Europe, Australia, et cetera. And, and I love it. And I play my little weekly game. It's actually today is What Is It Wednesday? And I love I love he- like hearing people's guesses as to what, what it is that I've posted and stuff. I love it. I love the, the interaction that I get and the fun I have. Well, I'm excited to go guess what today's is. Um, <laughs> today's, is fairly, today's is fairly easy compared to what some of the things I post are. <laughs> okay, good. That'll give me a chance then. <laughs> So before we head off, speaking about Twitter, is there anywhere on social media that people can find you and follow along? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter. Um, My Twitter handle is AquaticLife13, um, but you can just look up Stephanie Sickler and it it should bring me up. Um, I'm also on Instagram as just a river rat. Um, That's also my my little sciencey Instagram. So I'm on both of them. Perfect. Well, thank you for joining us today on the podcast to tell us all about freshwater systems. I think I speak for everyone listening that we learned a lot more about them than I thought we would. And I'm glad to hear a lot more. I'm glad to hear that. That's that's my goal is to, to get people interested and fascinated and learning more. 
Perfect. I think you did a fantastic job with that today. Yes, I'll mark that as a win. <laughs> okay, now that we know a lot more about freshwater systems, aren't they just the coolest? I learned so much in that episode. So Stephanie, thank you so much for teaching me a lot more about freshwater systems than I ever thought I would know. I will definitely be writing my thank you letter to these beavers ASAP. Does anybody have their address so I can send it to them? I'm not sure which dam to send it to. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.